previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. It was just something that you could go and be yourself and have a good time. And it brought a lot of people together. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Here we are for episode 103 of the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the show where guests share their connection to sports, and I'm your host, Earl Holland Jr. My guest for this episode, David Cabrera, both intern and work as a freelancer during my time as a reporter at the Daily Times in Salisbury, Maryland. He has always been passionate about sports, and most importantly, his beloved D.C. area teams such as the Washington Commanders, Capitals, and Wizards. The only thing he is more passionate about is his family, as he is a devoted husband and father of three. In this episode, David discusses what it's like being a dad to three daughters, why he opted not to pursue journalism as a full-time career, the creation of his own podcast that focuses on the commanders and all things football, and more. Right now, let's jump into my interview with David Cabrera. With me here is my guest. A lot of you guys may have seen him on our previous podcast when we were talking about the Washington football team then uh, when they had their chances to try to inch back into the NFC playoff race before, as in uh, classic, uh, I guess, LOL skins fashion they cratered but here with me to talk about it his fandom of the dc sports team his podcast and and so much more he was an intern when i was working in newspaper at the daily times in salisbury maryland here is david cabrera david thank you for being on the podcast i really appreciate you coming on to talk a lot about sports today Earl, thank you for having me man always a pleasure i just wanted to get in starting this off i know you initially had an interest in journalism, coming into working and interning at the Daily Times. How did that experience help you? And then did it branch into continuing to journalism, if not that communications itself? Yeah, so how I got the internship at the Daily Times. So my senior year of college, I was debating what company to to intern for. And it was for an internship class and you know i was just looking at the the different companies and i was like be kind of cool to write for a newspaper and then sean yonker who was the editor uh the sports editor at the time uh i had an interview with him and we vibe pretty well I, I think he liked some of the answers that i gave him and he ended up hiring me as an intern and i would go to the, the different salisbury sports games high school games and come back and write about it and have a deadline that I needed to hit. <laughs> so that was kind of real, just making sure that, you know, I had real concrete notes. Cause when I would go to a game, I would write afterwards, I would have my notepad. I don't know why I didn't just have a, an app or something where I would just record what the person I was interviewing was saying, but you know, I would just write it down, just handwrite it. And I, I guess it worked out for me because when I, when I went to actually write the story, whether at home or at the library, you know, whichever place was closer, the words just kind of spilled through on the page and I was able to write my story a lot faster. Asking you this when it came to writing, what was that pressure like, especially hitting deadlines? It had to be some type of internal clock that 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 goes off in your head and like, I need to get this done in so much time. And you're trying to do that. Not only that, trying to write clean, try to write concise, try to Write it quick, too, as well. But what is that process like for you? Man, I can remember one story in particular 
I had to go to a high school baseball game and ended up going into extra innings. And I think the game finished around nine something and I had to submit the story like at 1030. So I had to rush to the library, which is the closest place, have my notes in front of me. And well, let me backtrack. So on my way to the library, you know, think about how I want to begin the story. What quotes do I want to use? And then how do I want to end the story and just have that connect with the, uh, the beginning of the story? So thinking about all that, by the time I was at the library, I kind of had an idea of what I wanted to write. And I think I wrote that story and got it in maybe like 15 minutes mm. before the deadline, something like that. You know, you, you always want to kind of embellish <laughs> on different stories, but I, I think it was, it was pretty close. And yeah, that, that story ended up getting posted the next morning. So one story in particular about um, Stephen Bull, who was a baseball player at UMES, um, that story got on the, uh, the front page of the sports section. That was kind of a, a big deal for me, you know, especially growing up reading the Washington Post every day, faithfully, uh, especially the sports section and just uh, waiting to see what the, you know, big stories were, the uh, big profile pieces were. So to have my own was a was kind of a big deal. And yeah, working at the Daily Times was definitely a lot of fun, you know, especially with you and Sean and shout out Ryan Marshall. So yeah, and I think that especially the biggest thing is there's so many times where, especially writing a story, I feel like that's something you can do. Like, for example, I covering a lot of Shorebirds games, I already knew that the only thing that's going to change that final score sometimes. You always hear about reporters blowing up their whole story. Like I said, the guts should be something that you just tack on in the middle and then you know, hit a quote here, hit a quote there. I always know that the opening graph was always the toughest thing to write because, uh, you know, you want to go anecdotal lead, you want to go straight lead, and that's the toughest thing because sometimes there shouldn't be that much you have to rewrite in the guts of your story. It's just the ending, the end quote. Again, I always find that sometimes I would work from the bottom up as well. In addition to doing the guts, I work my way up because I know I got the killer quote at the end and then just work my way up and and basically put that story in. I mean, when it came to like certain games, like baseball games, I would use things like the Game Changer app, even in basketball. So I do that. So I keep track of scores just to see how much I tally up with the scorekeepers because sometimes there's even times and questions like, even if you have your eye on the score on the basket all the time, you might have it irregularly here, irregularity there. Like, oh, you might have attributed two points to somebody else who might have scored their basket. But I sometimes like keeping my own stats just to make sure. I doubt there's really funny business, but it's things like that that get a little crazy. Yeah, going back to, you know, how to write the lead. So I had a professor at Salisbury, Professor Simmons. Oh, man, great professor. I don't know if he's still there at Salisbury, but he had a very big impact as far as my writing ability. And in one of the classes, I think like that first week, he gave us a scenario as far as, you know, this is a story and you need to write the lead, the middle of the end in like 20 minutes. So you really don't have any time to think. You just have the facts, the quote, and you're off. 
And that really served me well when I got to the Daily Times and had to meet deadlines and needed to write stories effectively. So, man, when, when I think about my time at Salisbury, Daily Times, and, you know, of course, attending Salisbury University, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of influential people, especially Professor Simmons. I will be still there and teaching because, again, he was one of the best teachers I had there or anywhere else, really. Following your time at Salisbury University, what did you do career-wise? What kind of avenues did you pursue after that? So I graduated in 2014. I worked part-time at the Daily Times until July or so. And then I came back to the Montgomery County area of Maryland. And I don't know, leading up to graduation, I, I didn't know if I wanted to go the newspaper route. And then I finished the Daily Times and then I came home and I was like, I don't know, I was kind of stuck. You know, it's weird because, you know, you graduate college and a whole bunch of good vibes coming your way because, you know, you, you work towards that degree. But then there's that question of what's next. And I had an internship at the Department of Natural Resources, did like public relations stuff for them. I even did like a video for them. I don't know if I, I think I was on camera. I interviewed somebody for, it was, it was a weird story. Worked at a gym. And after that, I worked at a movie theater. So I was still kind of like just figuring out stuff. And then in 2016, so almost two years later, there was an opportunity with this defense contractor in D.C., and I just needed something stable at that time, honestly. And I found out that I really liked the job. And I was there for, well, technically still there. Uh, we got acquired by a company last year. So the previous company I was at was Griffin. Now it's Mantech. So for Mantech, I'm a technical proposal writer. So I'm going back to writing now. So what I do is I write and edit resumes for personnel within Mantech or companies that we may be working with proposals on or uh, contract write-ups. And then I'll help edit the actual proposals that we submit. And I've been doing this job for about two weeks. So that's the stuff that I'm uh, at least like editing proposals. I'll be doing that later on. So that's what I've been up to. It's interesting because whether you end up pursuing a career in journalism or going in some other avenue, I feel like those lessons that you learn really do come in handy, especially in whatever field, especially if it's a writing-based field. To you, was there a lot of crossover from journalism to the technical writing field? Oh, definitely. Definitely, for sure. As far as grammatical things, you know, when you're dealing with technical writing on proposals, you're interacting with engineers and people that write in a technical sense, like they don't know about punctuation and when to use flowery language. So yeah, those lessons that I learned through studying journalism have definitely served me well in this job. I can't say that it hasn't. It definitely makes sense because like I said, you're going to use it wherever you go, even if you get out of the, the journalism field or you go into public relations or something else like that. And I always think about the journalism aspect of it. I really think there's not much of a career that you can compare to it. It's like if you're one of the 
big stars in journalism, you might get paid well. And even then, that's not even extremely well. There are many people who grind in day and out, barely making a living wage, which is a frustrating feeling. It feels like that is something a bit disappointing, especially uh, seeing that without a lot of journalists, local government isn't covered or or even, I guess, a point taking a task when it comes to issues surrounding stuff in the community. And I see why a lot of people are abandoning ship from that field because it's not worth the headache and stress for such low compensation. Yeah. And that's honestly one of the things that I, I thought about when I was about to graduate Salisbury, some of the things that you said, as far as, you know, low compensation and, you know, really having to grind for a, a very long time to even, you know, make a dent. You look at all these, uh, well, particularly in sports journalism, you know, you have to have a very uh, loud type of personality. Not that that's a bad thing, because you got to be loud in order to <laughs> to make the big bucks. But when you think of journalism, you know, you, you think of people that might not necessarily be comfortable all the time in front of a camera. You know, they just want to cover the story, write it, have it published. That's it. Yeah, and it's weird when you see former journalists like Skip Bayless, like Stephen A. Smith. We're we're not going to ignore that he was a newspaper reporter at one point, but he was. I mean, I'd say Jay Mariotti because that was the first name that came to mind, and we all know that when it comes to a guy like that, he is not the best journalist or the best person either, mm-hmm. hearing all the things that happened to him and that he would just basically uh, take somebody else's comments and quotes uh, to write stories. But there is a way you can make money. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of Kevin Blackstones out there or you have LZ Granderson or you have Jamel Hill. And, and I mean, and like I said, the spectrum is wide. And, and right. I feel like, yeah, it's, it's a wide spectrum. And between them and the former pros who are personalities, it feels like that has become the norm, which I mean, and I'm glad most of them don't pretend to be experts on the subject because they aren't. I used to love watching Skip and Shannon, but then it just kept seeing the same one notes. It was LeBron. It was Tom Brady. It was the Cowboys. Basically, they didn't do the ESPN favors where it was, you know, it was the Yankees or Red Sox. They just talked about the same things that would read the metrics, which you got to go where your bread is buttered. But where your butter is, where your core audience wants you to go to. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, as far as Skip and Shannon, you know, I, I follow Shannon. So. I'll just look at the clips. I'm not even going to watch the show. And then first take is just, whoo, man, don't even get me started on first take. And that's the thing. And there's so many different other avenues. I don't know how much you follow. Uh, it was SB Nation, but uh, Secret Base and just all their things like beef. Hist- those I love. I love beef history. I love the uh, uh, collapse. I love those different stories. Even uh, Fumble. Fumble universe where all the weird stuff they talk about where they just try to break records with video games, like having a, a whole NBA league full of mediocre players and see who, who becomes a star. I think they're all like ranked 50 and then they just go for like a hundred years and these different guys win MVP. I have to check it out. And it's just, I, I like the different things. And like I said, and even then, like I think the most recent beef history I watched because I feel like I'm giving him a shout out, but it, it happens a lot. I think it was Kurt Busch and uh, Joey Logano. And, I, you know, not being a NASCAR fan, actually, that might not even be it. There might have been one more recent than that. There was a few. They even went historic and went Kareem and Wilt. Uh, oh. Yeah. 
And it went just from how uh, Wilt was Kareem's mentor and then how how petty uh, Wilt got and then things like that and how Kareem would fire back at him. It just got absolutely insane. But, I mean, I guess you sort of look at the story where if it is several people who uh, say that so-and-so is petty, it, like I said, if a friendship between Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain ended and all this other stuff, it's just like, you know how I, I like throwing names up, but like Shaq. When Shaq would badmouth a former teammate at any time, it was Penny, it was Kobe, it was Wade, it was all this <laughs> other stuff. It's like, man, what's the point of it, especially? Uh, I mean, you play with these guys and night in, night out. Yeah, it just seems like maybe it's more – him talking to, for the sake of talking, but yeah, that, and then that's that's why he's on inside the NBA because that's, that's that's what he does. He just he just talks, but that works for Shaq because mm-hmm. he has the personality for it, and people are going to listen. So if he has anything to say about Penny or or Kobe, and I'm glad they made up before Kobe passed, or D Wade, you know, people are going to listen, and you see how how close him and D Wade are now. Interesting that you said that. I was starting to think about this. This is something that's been running through my mind, and I have to ask this, and I think I'm eventually going to incorporate this in a blog post because, you know, the discussion's been raging on. The greatest of all time in the NBA, and I was thinking about this. There's at least eight people, especially if you start adding LeBron to the conversation, then at least two or three other people are in that list because just the matchups against LeBron, the fact they have more rings than LeBron, because that's what we're talking about. It's everything. I had said, if you had to do your, let's just say, your top eight to ten, uh, the greatest of all time, I personally start off with either 1A or 1B, Kareem and Michael Jordan. Yep. Then uh, it, it goes back and forth. Wilt, number two, just because of things that he did. You know, no one's ever averaged 50 points in a season ever since him. And the fact no one's ever scored more 100 points. What, Kobe was the closest with his 81? And then if you even have to... Uh, put LeBron in the situation, why is it that Kobe is not ahead of LeBron? Because LeBron, Kobe has more rings than LeBron. And in fact, just Kobe's resume, how are you going to put LeBron ahead of Kobe, which is iffy? And then you got to put Tim Duncan in the discussion yeah. because he has rings. He's edged out uh, well, LeBron in a, in a finals. And then, then you got to put Magic. If you're talking about rings, you got to put Bill Russell in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bill Russell's in that list because he won nine as a player, two as a coach, player coach. And then, and like I said, I know some people may attribute to him to being the Ben Wallace of his era, which, again, is 6'9". And, and again, you're playing against some decent centers aside from Will. I mean, by the time he retired, I think you know, Kareem hadn't even gotten to the league yet. I think they overlapped. There were plenty of other centers. There were Wes Unsell, and then and then you you had other guys. You had Dave Cowens. He's Hall of Fame caliber. Uh, there's probably a few more I can't pull uh, pull off the top of my head, but I feel like then there's a whole bunch of other people. And like I said, you got to put Magic in that race because it, it starts getting crazy. And to say that LeBron's going to be by far heads and tails, it's not even that easy. He's going to finish with the most points ever in NBA history, but. As much as everybody gets on Michael Jordan for not being able to beat the Pistons, LeBron lost to an inferior Orlando Magic team in the conference finals that that Kobe ended up smoking in the finals. I think, and also had LeBron beaten Kobe in the finals, I think there would be more room to put him ahead of Kobe. Yeah, I don't know with, but with Kobe though, he basically had two different careers. Yes, LeBron has played with three different franchises and is one with them, but. Kobe totally changed his game on the fly because his knees were just so messed up halfway through. So right after the 3P, he started having problems with his knees. Well, 
I think it was his right knee, not knees. So he was starting to work on his shooting more. And then when he won those two championships later on in his career, he was primarily a guy that was a fadeaway, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in the paint a little bit, but I'm a shoot kind of player. He wasn't, you know, I'm going to dunk it in your face type of guy that he was when he was playing with Shaq. And, you know, he didn't really have to shoot the ball as much because the Lakers, you know, primarily gave the ball to Shaq. You get the ball down to Shaq, down low in the post, you're going to dunk it. Kobe inspired LeBron. I mean, yes, LeBron talks about MJ, but when you think about LeBron, Melo, D-Wade, they're all inspired by Kobe. LeBron can win two more titles, but he's not going to be better than, than Kobe in my estimation. I pretty much watched Kobe from like 2000 up until he retired. And there's just nobody close in my estimation because again, to have two different careers, two different Jersey numbers, have those Jersey numbers retired and to have so much influence on how today's players play, what they wear. You see a whole bunch of players today where, where the Kobe's, I can't put LeBron above him. I just can't do it. But LeBron's top eight, though. There's no debate about that. LeBron's one of the greatest players to ever play the game. And the stuff that he was doing this year at 37, I mean, people can talk about low management and, you know, the 35-plus club as far as the, you know, the uh, the ages of the, the Lakers players. But um, to do what he was doing – and hopefully next year they'll turn it around. I don't know about a championship, but at least be in playoff contention. Yay. But to still be the, the best player on your team at 37, he's been in the league almost, what, 20 years? Yeah. It's just it's ridiculous. It's just a, a testament to how seriously he takes taking care of his body and just maintaining his level of play each year. Yeah, oh. and it's crazy especially the all-star game in cleveland it's like the potential return to cleveland i'm like nah i don't think they'd want him that's the last thing i'm gonna do destroy a potentially competitive team to to, for lebron to come back they don't need him i think he'll probably just stay in la because i don't know where else he can go right now because at the same time you you know i said that at 37 he's playing as great as he's played you know his entire career but nobody's gonna want to put lebron on their roster now you you really have to comb through each roster where would he end up other than back in la and you know hey if the lakers keep struggling they might be in a position to draft Bronny and make lebron's dreams come true of playing with his son in la so and even then Bronny, it doesn't seem like he's that high caliber player that everybody's going to be talking about he just i mean he's not just a guy but he's like yeah nothing super special he's not his dad or he's not probably some of those other guys coming up in some of those classes yeah that's that's true that's true but i guess for the lakers you know the same way that they tried to appease kobe in his last couple of years they'll probably try to do the same thing with lebron that's my bold prediction. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like after LeBron, that, and you look at every franchise that left out, outside of Miami who 
still found a way to get itself together after he left, even because with, uh, w- you know, with Wade leaving, going to Chicago and then coming back and then all the other things that went on, they bounced back fairly quickly as opposed to Cleveland. Even It took Cleveland several years to finally get themselves together to where they are right now, and even though in the playing game. Yeah, because uh, Cleveland has an actual GM now. The Lakers, I'm not sure. I, I don't no, know. No. I don't know how good of a GM no, Rob Palenka is. Rob Palenka, great agent for Kobe. GM, not too sure about that. 2020, even if it's the bubble, you still got to give them credit for assembling that roster that won a championship. But since that year, you know, they really haven't done much. You know, they got smoked by the Suns last year in uh, in round one. So next year is a, a big year for for Palenka and, and the Lakers, you know, because then they got to figure out who their coach is going to be. Because they thought that uh, Frank Vogel was it. And, you know, you get rid of him two years after he wins a championship for you guys. So see what happens. I've always wondered, even though it's not going to happen, what it would have been like with Phil Jackson coaching LeBron. But I, I don't know. They would have meshed. Even with, you know, Phil's reputation, it's like LeBron has really not had an elite coach coaching him. He had Mike Brown. He had David Blatt, Tyron Lue. Uh, he's had Luke Walton for a year. He, he, you mentioned Vogel. Would you consider Actually, Ultra elite. <sighs> um, hmm. That I don't know. He's he's under the Pat Riley tutelage. I mean, even then there was talk that LeBron was trying to pull a power play and get rid of Spolstra. Yeah, it, it's always something with LeBron and every stop, you know, trying to get rid of the coach. Because when he went, let's see, because in Miami, I mean, Spolstra you know, stayed throughout, but then he went to Cleveland and, you know, they had Blatt for a year, then he got fired. And then with Teron Lou, they won the championship. And then in LA, you got Vogel, but I mean, did, was there a coach before Vogel? I'm trying to remember. Uh, I thought it was Luke Walton for that one year before he ended up, because I think he got yeah. fired and then he went to uh, Sacramento. They made the playoffs. That's right. He got fired and that's when they hired Vogel. Yeah, I think you're right. There you go. Two franchises and, you know, two coaches have been fired. But that's not to say that LeBron's a, a coach killer. I, I don't think that's what we're trying to imply. But yeah. He's just never had an elite coach. He, he really hasn't. Yeah. And Spolster is a really good coach because, you know, every year Miami's in contention. They're the number one seed this year in the East. So I don't know about elite, but you can't say he's not great because championships say that he's a pretty darn good coach. So. And how many coaches went to the finals with and without LeBron James? Not many coaches can say that, except for Spolster. He's the only one. And I would say that he probably did his best work without LeBron. Because, like you said, you know, when LeBron left, Miami had to start from scratch. You know, yes, they haven't won a championship, but they they made the finals, got beat by LeBron. but And a decimated team, too decimated team at that because i think jimmy butler was going into the finals hurt or he hurt his ankle game one or something like that bam was hurt i think he hurt his shoulder in one playoff game so yeah like you said that was a banged up team and we didn't get to see the best matchup between uh miami and la but i mean again that's a testament to to spolstra and his coaching ability getting the team that that far and we'll see what happens this year 
Who do you have coming out in the NBA Finals? Your ideal NBA Finals matchup. Do you think it's it's Milwaukee Phoenix again? Is it some other entity? Is it the year the Sixers finally get over the hump? They have no excuses. No Ben Simmons boogeyman. No Brett Brown can't do the job. Do you think this is the year for the Sixers or or anyone else? <sighs> I could see a rematch between Milwaukee and Phoenix simply because Giannis is playing his best basketball. As far as being a complete player, he can shoot the ball from outside consistently now. And as far as Phoenix, they took last year personally. They really did. You you can see that. They're just, even when they didn't have Chris Paul, they, yeah, they didn't miss a beat. And I don't, I don't think it matters who they play. Honestly, in the West, Earl, I think Phoenix is going to go back. And as far as the East, I don't know what it is about James Harden, but I just don't trust him in the playoffs. I don't trust him to be a complete performer. I mean, you you see his performances in, uh, in Houston and Brooklyn and, you know, to, to hope that he's going to finally pull it, put it all together for Philly is a, is a huge ask. And then to not have him perform and put all that pressure on Embiid's shoulders. And I think Embiid wins the MVP this year simply because you lead the league in scoring as a big man, you know, scoring 30 points a game, playing as well as he's played. You, you just got to give it to him. But to have all that pressure on him in the playoffs, it's just, it's going to be too much. So this might be controversial, but I think it's going to be Brooklyn coming out the East. I think that they've, they found something these past couple of games. And, you know, you saw in the playing game, how locked in Kyrie is. I mean, that dude is just balling out of control right now. It's, it's ridiculous. And Kevin Durant really didn't have to do much. You know, he had a quiet 25 point game. And I mean, how many times can you say somebody had a quiet, you know, 20 point game? It's crazy. So my finals prediction is Brooklyn and Phoenix. And that's what, that's what I thought the matchup was going to be last year. So to get that this year would be, be pretty cool. You know, to see Durant versus book Kyrie versus Chris Paul, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's been interesting to see them. They're going to have to go through either the Celtics, the Bucks, or the Bulls to to get. I mean, then before that's even before having to face either Miami, Toronto, Philly, or whoever the eighth seed is. But it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a gauntlet, and they're lucky that New York did pull rescind that uh, that order, or they'd really be in trouble without Kyrie because that'd be a whole different team without Kyrie. I think the only problem would be if Toronto advances. You know, their policy, you know, you have to be vaccinated. So Kyrie wouldn't be available. And we'll see if Toronto makes it through the gauntlet. But, you know, not to say that, you know, oh, my goodness, Brooklyn is going to get beat by Toronto. But, you know, if they do happen, if they do happen to cross paths with Toronto and have to go to Toronto, that's going to be a big deal. Not having Kyrie for however many games they're they're out there. So. Yeah, that would be if everything stays the same. That would be a four game, four of the seven. If it's a seven game series, four of them in Toronto, including Game Seven. So that would be that would that would be huge. It would sort of be like the matchup with the 
Nets and Bucks, where basically Harden finally started playing, even though he was basically on one leg that time. But yeah, who knows? One of the things I wanted to ask you as well, you growing up in the Montgomery County area, being a big DC sports fan, just getting your thoughts on some of the, the things going on in DC sports. I know the big news was the Nats possibly going up on the market. And I know that's that's a huge, huge thing, especially not even three years removed from winning a World Series, but I think, and the start of a rebuild. But I, I think that if, in this case, it wouldn't be considered an abject failure. Does they still won the World Series? They're rebuilding again. They are in a much better place than they were when the learners bought them uh, almost uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, that really caught me by surprise because I'm really trying to think of a, a good reason why. Only the learners could tell you why they're selling. So maybe they don't want to be a part of a rebuild. Maybe they're like, like you said, you know, we, we, we got the championship in 2019. We said when we bought the team that we were going to win a World Series and, you know, they delivered on that promise. And now they, you know, it's time to go. And uh, I don't know if it's, uh, I want to say it's Mark Lerner that's had a lot of health problems. So maybe that's another reason, you know, that, uh, you know, they, they want to take the limelight away from him, you know, all that responsibility away from him and, and those pressures and, you know, just, uh, you know, sell the team and, and give it to a group that, you know, is going to be 100% on top of the Nationals organization, uh, behind the Nationals organization. So, And just seeing how old Ted Lerner is, I assume he's probably still controlling owner. I mean, I assume – that might be saying something about estate taxes and people and having to owe a lot more and that issue being willed down to the team and they might not have money because I know that's a similar situation that's being discussed in Baltimore with the Orioles. And that might be another reason sometimes, hey, if the patriarch is up there in his 90s um, and and worth billions of dollars or millions of dollars, estate taxes are going to probably, I'm assuming this, I, I'm not a tax expert, but I'm assuming uh, estate taxes will probably be murder when it comes to uh, owning a team and owning some other business. Right. Man, it's just, <laughs> what was funny is that when that news broke, I saw a, a quote retweet on Twitter right after that. I was like, wrong DC team. <laughs> and you think like, for example, I mean, there's talk that Ted Leonsis might be in on buying the Nats. Uh, you know, Bezos might be slowly starting to collect things. He is, He's not hurting for money. So I don't think that despite the divorce, he's not hurting for money. And maybe that's the first linchpin in him establishing himself in D.C. And even before he finds a way to procure the football team that everybody wants to be sold. I find that a lot of people are lukewarm on him. It's not like they they hate him or they they love him. There's just like a a middle ground for Leonsis. I mean, because... The Capitals won a Stanley Cup. You look at the Mystics and their success and who knows what the Wizards are, but, you know, they've had their playoff runs, if you will. Well, short playoff runs. So if he wants to own the Nats and he has the the money, I mean, go for it. But I think it's going to be an, an outside suitor. Who that's going to be, I don't know. Maybe it's a person with shares in another organization right now, whether it be MLB, basketball, the NFL, because it, not to jump the gun here, but if you 
you know, as far as the commanders, I was reading up on Twitter that there's a guy right now, Josh Harris, who owns the New Jersey Devils and is a part owner of the Steelers, who could be the most logical successor for the commanders. So it could be like something like it could be something like that for the Nationals, where it's just it's someone that we haven't heard of that could end up buying the team. And I don't think they've officially announced that they're going to sell the team. I think they're exploring the option. So we'll see where their exploitation takes them, you know, whether it's stepping back and, you know, letting someone else from the family take a major role in ownership or just selling the team altogether. Yeah. And like I said, in the Maryland area, there's probably a, and Northern Virginia area, there's probably a lot of millionaire billionaires. They could probably afford a team. Like I said, and even mentioning the worst case, the Orioles could also be up for sale. So there's a, probably a bunch of people who might be looking like, well, if we can't get the Nats, we could get the Orioles or this or that or command or the commanders. And like I said, the worst case would be Daniel Snyder buys the Nats. And, but uh, I don't think, <laughs> I mean, they turned down Mark Cuban from buying the Pirates and yeah. he's far less problematic than, uh, than Dan Snyder. So. Yeah, and uh, as far as the Josh Harris thing there, I just want to shout out Chad Forbes because, you know, people get really sensitive when you don't shout out the the source for the news. So shout out Chad Forbes for that tweet. I, ju- I just remembered it, man. Photographic memory sometimes. It just, it hits. <laughs> yeah. Now we're going to talk about the commanders because I know that that's the biggest thing. That has been a disaster, and it just seems like the yeah. hits have been coming and the hits have been coming for the past three years, and it just feels like what is going on? I always said... I don't know how Dan Snyder made his money. He seems like a horrible businessman, but I don't know how he made his money. And I mean, it wasn't for old man cook, not leaving the team to his son. The learners were also bidding for the team. Well, imagine how different that would have been if the learners got the commanders, the Redskins, whatever people want to call. I mean, back then they were the Redskins. Now they're the commanders, which that whole name thing is going to be something that it, I know there's so many things to dissect, but uh, I guess first, the whole situation with the commanders and the whole ownership strife with Dan Snyder, what are your thoughts on that? I've been on record, whether it be my podcast or anybody that really asks me, you know, what do you think about Dan Snyder? And I don't really care for the man. I was hoping that the scandal back in, was that, 2020 now we're talking? would be the straw that broke the camel's back, but that wasn't it. He just, he's like a zombie. He just rises. You think he's dead and he just rises up from the ashes and, you know, rises up unscathed. So with this whole thing with the the FTC and, you know, him not paying the uh, other owners and uh, potentially his players you know on the commander's roster i mean that's a big deal that's a big deal he can go to jail for that because that's withheld payment you know that's white collar crime and you know going back to how did he make his money you know who who honestly knows you know he he probably just must have a a great network of people that's the only thing i can think of right now and as far as how he remains the owner of this team he must have some dirt on everybody it's crazy he, he must have dirt on all 32 teams goodell people in the league office because it's just anytime you see good news about the team bad news follows that day 
because I think the FTC thing broke the same day that they announced that the the games are going to be broadcast on Big 103. I saw that in the morning, and then midday was when the stuff about the FTC broke. It's just it's just one thing after the other, and you know people that consider this team to be a joke. I mean, they have a point. The owner's a joke. The team hasn't done anything since '91, and it's just frustrating. It really is, and you know, you hope to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you know, you as a fan, you get promised that every new head coaching regime, you know, oh, this is going to be different, or every new drafty or you know, high price free agent signee, you know, there's always this promise of, oh, you know, we're turning the corner, and there just comes a point where you just got to stop believing that and just say guys, you need to just shut up and just perform on the field. Let your play do the talking. Yeah, and the other thing about it is, like I said, you mentioned nothing good has happened. Yeah, every time they make the playoffs, it's either they don't show up, you have the Seattle game under Shanahan, the playoff game against Green Bay, Jay Gruden. Oh, Jay Gruden. Uh, Man, I I don't know what what happened that game because, you know, as a fan, you're excited that, you know, that, they got everything rolling on offense. Aaron Rodgers can't get anything going on the other side. And that play by Deshaun Jackson was really the turning point because, you know, they, they could have gone up, I think, I think it was like 10 plus points, something like that, I want to say. And, you know, they had to settle for a field goal. And then Aaron Rodgers started to get hot and they, they, and they lost that game. And that's been their only real taste of almost – playoff success because you look at the game against the Buccaneers, you know, they really didn't have a chance throughout that whole game, even though Taylor Heineke played his butt off. But yeah, that Green Bay game uh, under Gruden was, was their best chance. And that was a real exciting year because, you know, offensively, they were one of the best in the league. Defensively, they're making plays, you know, they weren't stopping anybody, but they were making plays and, you know, you kind of had high hopes and we're kind of back to square one seven years later. So, Yeah, and just hoping that Carson Wentz is the guy because at this point a lot of people are staking their careers on it, and it is a uh, complete and utter mess because a lot of people are going to lose their jobs because of this Yeah, if, they, if it doesn't work out. You, you look at uh, Ron Rivera and what he said leading up to, to this year, you know, year three is a, is a big deal, and like you said, a lot of people are, well, Ron included, are staking their careers on, you know, how well Carson Wentz is going to play. And you look at how Carson performed in Indy. You know, Indy was, uh, you know, they were primarily a, a rushing team. You know, there was talk of Jonathan Taylor, you know, winning the MVP, you know, of how well he was playing. So Washington wants to have a more, you know, downfield type of offense this year and, you know, you look at all the mock drafts and, you know, the Ohio State wide receivers are being mocked to them. Drake London from USC is being mocked to them. But I think their success and Carson Wentz's success would benefit from a run-first approach. And, you know, you look at a back like Antonio Gibson. Yes, he has the fumble problems, but he's a very talented running back, you know, ran for over a thousand yards last year. And, you know, he's coming into his third year. And when you talk about players in year three, that's when their careers either they go up or they go down. 
So at least for me anyway, as a commanders fan, I hope that, you know, we let Antonio Gibson do his thing and, you know, take pressure off Carson Wentz and see where that takes us. Yeah, because I think their line is great. No Trent Williams issues anymore. I know Scherf going to Jacksonville, that's going to be a different thing. But, I mean, their line was very good. Leno was good. They added the new guard previously from – Yeah, uh, Norville. Yeah, yeah. with Carolina the same time that Ron Rivera was there. And Cosme was nice, too, at right tackle as a rookie. You know, he just uh, had some injuries there. But when he played, he was really good. I mean, not – he was even more than serviceable, you know. He was really solid. So, yeah, the offensive line is good enough for Gibson to have success and, yeah. you know, for Carson Wentz to be able to take those deep shots that he wants to. Yeah. You look yeah. at his success in, in Philly, you know, at least all those highlight tapes against us <laughs> when he was in Philly, you know, he was throwing that deep ball pretty good, so – We'll, we'll see how he does. And I know one of the things where you talk a lot more about the Commanders is your podcast, the Unnamed Sports Podcast. First of all, coming up with the title, I'm assuming, was this uh, in correlation with the whole name controversy discussion, the name change, or or was that some other reasoning? So <laughs> it wasn't really that. Uh, the name before that was the, gosh, it was the uh, four-minute drill because I was trying to aim for my episodes to be four minutes long, and they ended up being way longer than four minutes. So I was like, I need to come up with a new name. It just needs to be something original, or it could be like a placeholder name. So that's where the whole unnamed sportscast podcast name came from. And it's always fun recording, because you just never know who's going to pop up, especially... Well, I should really start doing, you know, more of a video post, but I'm just trying to get the podcast rolling, if you will. Yeah. Because I have a small following. So hopefully by this summer, you know, I'll be able to to do a, a video recording of the podcast. But, you know, as far as audio, it's kind of funny because I try to get into a quiet place in the house, but she still ends up finding me. And sometimes she's on the shows and, those, funny enough, are the shows that people listen to the most. So it uh, it works out. You never know. She might be a lucky charm on this one. You know, I have a lot of people watching. I mean, hey, at this point, hey, you never know. There's always an interest. Children always make things more interesting sometimes, especially with that. And I know that that's the one big thing. It's like, is it mainly Commander's talk or is it more uh, other topics as well? That Does it seem to be just a focus on the Commander's? Yeah, I'd say... 80% is commanders and then 20% is just any NFL news that might intrigue me. I mean, especially during the playoffs when the commanders were not in it, definitely had to talk about the different matchups, especially the, the Super Bowl and free agency signings, uh, the trades that occurred this offseason, what I thought about that because last month was just ridiculous. It was just quarterbacks getting traded, wide receivers getting traded, and then signing for big money, the Rams getting everybody, you know, uh, Allen Robinson, Bobby Wagner. Man, I really think they're going to repeat or not repeat, but at least make it to the Super Bowl again. But 80% commander's talk and then 20% some of the stuff that I just talked about. So I tried not to talk about the commanders too much because some of my listeners are fans of other NFL teams and might have interest in other topics, but it's not something that's regimented, if you will. 
as far mm -hmm. as I know what I'm going to talk about. It's just something that I hear about on Monday. I mean, even this past episode, I waited until Saturday to record. And that was when, uh, you know, everybody found out about the unfortunate passing of Dwayne Haskins. And, you know, I just wanted to to talk about that and, you know, how unfortunate thing that was, you know, a young man at the age of 24 who, you know, looking to have a fresh start with Pittsburgh. You know, yes, they signed Trubisky, but he was going to have a chance to compete for that starting quarterback spot in camp. And, you know, people point to his successes at Ohio State. You know, he was the, the guy that primarily got things going as far as that being a quarterback factory. You know, you look at Justin Fields getting drafted in the first round last year, C.J. Stroud being a highly touted guy going into this upcoming college football season. But, um, but yeah, Dwayne was the guy that really started things off at Ohio State, at least for this generation. And, yeah, that was really unfortunate to hear. And I just, again, I just wanted to to try to to talk about that. That's just the example of how flexible I am with uh, the topics that I talk about. So, Interestingly enough, and this is where the comparisons end, he was the same age as Sean Taylor, 24 years old uh, when he passed. Yeah, you're totally right. And that's crazy because I remember that. I look at it. I'm born 50 days before Sean Taylor, 50 days, same year, 1983. And it's like, I'm, I look at it. I'm like 24 years old. I'm like, you're oh. kidding. It is absolutely crazy at that time. And it's like, I, I still couldn't believe it. And like I said, the comparisons, that's the only comparison I'm using their path and their unfortunate endings. And even saying that just sounds Kappa. their unfortunate passings were, were in very different. No one can speculate that, but it's just very interesting. 24 years old and so much life to live. No one's going to ever say, you know, when someone passes who's 95, 100 years old, you know, like with Betty White, 99 years old, no one will ever be sad that, that she passed. Everybody's going to say she lived a good life. When you're 24 years old, you've lived one quarter of that, nearly a quarter of that. And a lot of people are, are going to be in disbelief. Yeah, well, the thing with Betty, I think People Magazine jinxed her a little bit as far as having that early celebration of her 100th birthday. Because it was like, I think two days after that, she passed. You know, not to blame people, but it's like, mm -hmm. can we just wait until the lady turns 100? Because it's like every year before she passed, it was like, you know, people just putting out the Betty White passed away hoax. It's like, yo, stop playing with Betty because everybody yeah. loves Betty White. <laughs> and then to see that happen was a, a very sad thing. And yeah, everybody promoting these birthday celebration for Betty White. I'm like, for a person who's going to turn 100, you better hope that it's a birthday celebration instead of a memorial tribute because yeah. uh, anyone of that age, it's touch and go at any point. David, I know you got a lot of things going on. I really appreciate you. And I didn't want to hold you too much longer. What are ways people can reach out to you on social media? Anything else that you want to add that you think people should know? And another chance to promote the podcast. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So as far as the podcast, I try to do the, the episodes weekly. I record them on Podbean and post them on my Facebook and Twitter pages. So you can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram. Uh, you know what? Nope. Can't do that. Cause I'm recording on my phone. I was going to look it up. Man, it's just, I, I should have been prepped, but you know, always got to do things last minute. 
sometimes when it comes to kids. But yes, Podbean for the podcast. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn. And man, so as far as these little girls, this one is turning two later on this month on the 27th. Uh, oldest one's turning seven next month. And then uh, our youngest uh, daughter, uh, she turned four months old today. She was born on December 14th. So she is four months old today. Shout out Juliana, Vanessa. I tell you, the, being the new dad feeling for me, it's his first time. I just thought like the first few months, like the first month, just keep him alive. That's all I can do. Just keep him alive. Everything else will work itself out. And even with sleeping patterns and everything else. And it's yeah. like, uh, I'm glad I was able to, like I said, get past that first month. Everything has been uh, pretty crazy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What's funny is that with this one, I was so worried and concerned, you know, as far as, you know, trying to keep her alive and not dropping her. And uh, with, uh, with Julie, the uh, the four month old, she's already holding her head up. She's trying to stand up, do all this advanced stuff, and it's like, okay, I don't have to worry about you as much. But uh, try not to grow up too fast. Yeah, it feels like the kids in the pandemic, like that one video said. And until you have a kid in the pandemic, these pandemic <laughs> babies are something different. <laughs> so you know, I mean, I always think like, you know, it is absolutely true. Sophia, she's already popping her head up and we're doing tummy time all the time and everything. So oh, that's a, that's man. a huge thing. And like I said, she'll be four months in May and it's just absolutely crazy. She's already starting to hold her bottle too. And next thing you know, she'll start crawling and then all, you know, all bets are off. Start talking, man. It's a whole oh, new ball game. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. That's when you know, you definitely have to watch what you say around them too. <laughs> Definitely have to censor yourself and just replace certain words. <laughs> it's been wonderful to see. I've been following you on Facebook and, you know, all the different posts of uh, Lil Sophia, man. She's a very cute little girl, very blessed little girl to, oh, to yeah. and your wife as parents. It was great catching up with David and getting a greater perspective on him and the things he loves and that he is truly passionate about. Next time. My guest is Eastern Shore basketball legend Andre Collins, who's won championships at the high school, college, and professional levels of basketball. As always, all episodes of The Sports Refuge can be found wherever podcasts are heard, including Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, as well as The Sports Refuge website. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of these apps and leave a mention, which we'll read on a future episode. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.